The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Anna Greta Hunter and I'm delighted to be here with my co-host Sharon Bessel. Sharon, how are you? Hi Anna Greta, I'm really well and it is great to be here with you. Anna Greta, during this year we've had nine episodes of Policy Forum Pod that are focused on the voice to Parliament with the aim of bringing research, evidence and deep reflection to the debates. This episode is our 10th and across all of those episodes we've heard about what the voice is, a very modest ask based on the Uluru Statement which Pat Anderson described to us a couple of years ago as a gift to our country. We've heard how it will help to bring unity and begin to move us beyond the divisions of the past and the present. And we've heard how it will lead to better outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and for us as a nation. And Anna Greta, when I think back to those conversations, I'm struck how incredibly powerful they've been. But I think there are three things that will really stay with me from those those episodes, those conversations that we've had. And one was Helen Haynes describing the Uluru Statement as the Magna Carta of our time. And I must confess, when she made that comment, I was perhaps a little sceptical about the magnitude of the claim. But then when I reread it and thought about what it is that that statement means, I think that she's right that the Uluru Statement is one of the most powerful statements that this country has ever seen. And I do think that regardless of the outcome of the referendum on the 14th of October, the power of the Uluru Statement remains and that will continue to be such an important document for us as we move forward. The second thing that will stay with me is Catherine Little's description when she talked about the past and and the, the past that continues to shape the present for so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And she described people calling to their stolen children to let them know that they were still loved, even though they'd been taken away. And that just reminds us, if we need reminding so powerfully, of what history is for many Australians. And the third thing which links to the, the to the first, to my comments about the Uluru Statement, was the extraordinary privilege of hearing Thomas Mayo, having told us about his vision for The Voice, then recite the Uluru Statement from the heart. And I think that will stay with me for a very long time. Anna Greta, were there, were there things that are going to stay with you? Sharon, there are so many things that are going to stay with me. I've often reflected on the conversation we had with Pat Anderson some years ago and and listening to her in public over the course of the last year or so, those themes of generosity and love, uh, of understanding and the real gift that surrounds both the Uluru Dialogue and the subsequent Uluru Statement, these are themes that are extraordinary to me and themes that have woven their way through almost all the conversations we've had around The Voice. 
And I'm really struck by the importance of narrative. This, of course, was an issue we, we took up with Rebecca Huntley just last week. These stories of our Australian past, the conversation with Kate Horty, our present of where we're at at the moment and what our future might be, the narratives of identity and culture, the stories, it's the stories that I know as I hold on to hope heading into the referendum this weekend, it's those stories that I will hold on to regardless of the results of the vote. Uh, These stories will resonate, I'm sure, throughout our community in the years ahead. And of course, it's their stories reflecting on our past, considering our present and thinking toward our future, which we will take further in today's discussion. And today, we're delighted to be joined by one of the most thoughtful historians of our generation and a wonderful colleague, Professor Frank Bongiorno AM. Frank is a professor of history at the ANU's College of Arts and Social Sciences. He's held positions in Australia and the UK and has written widely on Australia's political history. He's the author of four books, including the recently published and highly recommended Dreamers and Schemers. Frank, it's wonderful to have you with us today to help us reflect on the referendums in Australia, this referendum in particular, and what it might mean for our future. Welcome. Thank you, Anna Greta, and uh, thank you, Sharon. Uh, Frank, the referendum that will happen on the 14th of October is the first referendum Australia has had since 1999, which was on the establishment of the Republic. For many Australians, the idea of a referendum is novel and not something that they've experienced. Since Federation, we've had 44 referendums, only eight of which have been successful. Some of those referendums have been more exciting than others, but I wonder if you could just talk us through the history of referendums in Australia and what what are the ingredients that contribute to a yes vote or perhaps the factors that tend to spell failure? Yeah, thanks, Sharon. Yeah, I think yes votes have tended to come from fairly non-contentious matters and matters on which the major political parties, and we've had a, a two-party system, broadly speaking, in Australia since 1909, you know, where two sides at elections tend to be competing for executive power. And, and, and yes, I mean, successful um, election results, yes results, have tended to come from Either minor matters, non-contentious matters, but particularly matters where bipartisanship has been established, and that's obviously something that has been absent um, from the present one. It was also absent to some extent uh, from the 1999 campaign, although that was slightly different, of course, because the contention there wasn't necessarily along party lines. I mean, the Labor Party's policy was for a republic. But Liberals, of course, contain both pro-Republican and monarchist um, advocates. And indeed, you know, even on the Republican side had advocates of direct election and parliamentary selection of a president. So it wasn't quite, you know, a lack of bipartisanship as such in 1999 that was the issue as a high degree of contention and disagreements between different sides. Frank, one of the features of constitutional change in Australia is the need for a double majority in the vote. And of course, that reflects the concern in the constitution with states' rights. Is the idea of a double majority still a reasonable one? The double majority does make uh, change harder. It was taken over from the Swiss. So, I mean, the referendum as a method uh, was was adopted uh, by the Federation founders quite knowingly, consciously from the Swiss constitution. And and indeed, that provision was there among the Swiss cantons for 
a majority of voters and a majority of cantons. Um, it is an aspect of our federal system. It was designed to ensure that you couldn't have um, a referendum get up um, with you know, only the support of the more populous states, for instance, uh, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. Um, so it was really designed to preserve federation. It was a part of the many bargains that we find in the constitution between the more and less populous states. And of course, the very big ones then as now, um, even more then than now, were New South Wales and Victoria. Um, so it, it really came out of that. Um, we shouldn't exaggerate the significance of that one, though. Um, there have only been five occasions on which uh, a majority voted yes nationally, but uh, the requisite majority of states, four out of six, wasn't achieved. So that's only happened five times. That said, on one of those occasions, it was a whopping 62% yes vote, and it didn't get up on simultaneous elections in 1977 with bipartisanship between the major parties. And you can see what's happened there. Victoria and New South Wales voted for it. You know, the voters there were generally supportive of it. I think in that case, South Australia was the third state that said yes, but the others said no. So you ended up with a 3-3 and 62%. But broadly speaking, that hasn't been the reason that um, proposals have gone down. Uh, the Whitlam government in 1974, and this gets meta, the teenagers amongst us would call this meta, I think, because, or our, our undergraduates might call it meta. Uh, in 1974, the Whitlam government put up a referendum proposal to allow uh, a yes vote if it was a majority of voters, that 3-3 result in, in, amongst the states. But it went down. It wasn't. It wasn't supported. So uh, that was probably the best chance we had of over, overcoming this particular issue. But as I said, it, it probably it hasn't been the major reason for the defeat of proposals at election. Only five of those defeats were the result of, of that problem. Frank, just out of curiosity, what was the referendum on in, I think you said 1977, when there was a a majority of 62%, but it didn't get up on the states. Simultaneous elections, so to remove the, the still strange provision in the Constitution, um, as you'd be aware, senators take up their seats on the 1st of July. Um, that there's a kind of um, Senate, Senate terms are fixed and House of Representative terms aren't. Um, so it was a provision to ensure that elections were held simultaneously for the Senate and the House of Representatives. Not the only time that proposal was put up, actually. It was put up on, 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 in fact, by the Whitlam government, if I remember rightly as well. But yes, the Fraser government put it up in 1977 and it went down. But three others got up that day. I mean, this is often not widely recognised as well. Of the eight that have been achieved, um, three of the three of them happened on the same day in 1977. Uh, so it's, it's an absolutely inglorious record if you take the, you know, the hundred and whatever it is now, 20 plus years of federation three of the eight successful votes, yes votes, were on a single day in 1977. That's quite extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, I, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of that referendum on, on holding an election simultaneously, and I would have thought that that would have been popular just on the grounds of cost, but, yeah, not so. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, you would think a relatively non-contentious matter. I mean, the ones that did get up, in 77 were the uh, compulsory retirement of high court judges at the age of 70. 
So you'd have to say probably not the most pressing problem for Australian uh, political life, but nonetheless, um, uh, you know, something that had become a bit of an issue because of high court judges holding on for, you know, until very advanced age. Uh, so there was that one. Uh, oh, the, the casual vacancies uh, provision, which came out of the dismissal in 1975, where two state premiers, when senators had retired or died, uh, died, in fact, in both instances, had put, appointed replacement senators from other parties. You know, they hadn't, according to the, the convention of the day, appointed a casual Senate vacancy from the same party. So that 1977 provision ensured that that would, would happen in the future. It provided for it in the Constitution. Very interesting in that it's the only point in the Constitution where the term party is used. So our political parties are obviously central to our system, which we won't find a single reference to a political party in our original Constitution. The only place you'll find it is in that 1977 uh, constitutional change about casual Senate vacancies because they needed to obviously use the term given that it was all about ensuring that someone from the same party would be appointed if a casual Senate vacancy occurred. Frank, it, it is fascinating to hear you talking about the Constitution and some of the details of it that I think most of us are completely unaware of and we often make a lot of assumptions about what is in the Constitution and what isn't. And those assumptions are often very, very far from the mark. Yes, in fact, the third one in 77 is of great interest to us here in the ACT because it's actually allowing us to vote this Saturday. Uh, we were not allowed to vote in, as members of the uh, you know, residents of territories in referendum uh, uh, votes until then, until 1977. So that was the third change that got up in 1977. But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we take for granted is a part of our, our, our sort of federal constitution that isn't there, wasn't there originally, has evolved by convention and practice. I think that's very important. I mean, our constitution has changed. Um, our system of federalism has changed quite dramatically since 1991. It just hasn't changed dramatically as a result of a referendum vote. I mean, those changes have for the most part, I think, been at the periphery. Arguably, the most significant of them were about finance in the 1920s. I mean, that was arguably the most ambitious of them was, what, 1928, and, and it was a significant reform, really, to the ways in which loans were raised by Australian governments. In a lot of respects, that was probably the most ambitious uh, change in terms of how, how we're governed. I mean, it ensured, for instance, that well, it was one of the, the forces that led to, uh, I guess, the greater financial clout of the Commonwealth uh, over the following decade. So it mattered quite a lot. But a lot of them have been at the edges. And, and um, perhaps one that wasn't at the edges is, of course, 1967. I know you'd like to talk about that, given its obvious relevance to what we're doing on Saturday. So, Frank, maybe maybe we can go to that one now. And and you've written about this referendum that we're facing in a in a very short period of time, which is around constitutional recognition of First Nations people by establishing a voice to Parliament. Um, and you've compared this referendum with the 1967 referendum, and, and that enabled the Commonwealth to make laws regarding Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders in any state, and allowed Indigenous people to be counted for constitutional purposes. That 1967 referendum was successful with a yes vote, I think, of over 90%. In the lead up to this referendum, it's it's almost impossible to call, although the no campaign's looking strong. 
Frank, what are the major differences in terms of what was put to the people, but also in terms of the political context now and then? Yeah, I mean, the world of 1967 in Aboriginal affairs, in Indigenous policy, was a very, very different one from, from where we are now. Um, you know, the, the, the major um, representative organisation of the day for Patsy, uh, I'm, I'm always stumble over what Fakatsi stands for, but uh, the, the Federal Council for uh, the Advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands, as I think, I probably got that slightly wrong, but it had been around since in, in one form or another since the late 1950s. And, you know, it's it's still to a large extent, not entirely, but it's still to a large extent a, a white organisation. I mean, the, the idea of, of Indigenous or Aboriginal leadership of that kind of organisation really emerges out of the 1967 referendum. So I think it's really important, a really important difference with the present is that the much greater, I guess, um, salience, the, the, the greater presence, of course, of Indigenous voices and Indigenous people in our politics, that we have multiple Indigenous people and member, members of the federal parliament was something that we certainly didn't have in 1967, although Neville Bonner would, would join uh, the Senate for Queensland as a Liberal senator, not very long after that, but a few years after that. But um, things were very, very different. There's now a very complex uh, system of Aboriginal governance, really. You know, many organisations, councils, bodies around the country, um, a, a very different kind of terrain, I think, on the side of Aboriginal affairs. But I think more generally, the key difference, it seems to me, between 67 and, and the present is that the 1967 vote was given a relatively straightforward meaning within the kind of, I suppose you might call it propaganda or the framing of the day. It was seen to be about bringing Aboriginal people into the polity in a more meaningful way, into the political system. Um, it was seen, even though it wasn't really about citizenship, it was seen to be about citizenship. And I think a lot of people probably went to the polls in 1967 thinking that it was about fairly broad and perhaps vague things like giving Aboriginal people a better go, ensuring that Aboriginal people were were treated as full citizens, those kinds of concepts. And I, I don't think that kind of simplicity has been possible. It certainly hasn't been achieved in the framing of the present vote over the voice. And I think that's probably where some of the, the major difficulties have emerged. Um, it, it's, you know, often been framed by its opponents as somehow giving special rights, uh, rights to Indigenous people that are somehow beyond or above what other people have. And I think that's been a very damaging framing for, for the yes case, you know, the ways in which the no case has been able to present it in those terms has has been very different from what happened in 1967. And so I think I'd see that as a, a, a big a big difference, I think. Frank, we spoke just recently with Rebecca Huntley and she was highlighting the importance of a clear narrative around the referendum, both now and historically. And I think you've just given us a, a remarkable taste of that 1967 uh, referendum narrative. I think it's a narrative we still feel today when we talk about the importance of that vote. So I wonder what your reflections are. I think you've started to explain it to us, but the narratives on the reflections today from both the Yes campaign and from the No campaign, what sort of stories are we hearing? Yes, I mean, the, the No campaign uh, has, how shall I put this? I mean, it, 
there is clearly an element of of disinformation that is going on. I think um, that's widely acknowledged, and that that has undoubtedly been damaging to to the East Coast. The fact that people um, have probably been told things that are, are simply untrue. That uh, um, you know that the proposal has been framed in a way that makes it, uh, I think, seem more. Um, Probably more radical, more drastic in its its effects um, than than it actually is. It's an advisory body, um, but clearly um, it's not necessarily being presented as an advisory body amongst those who are opposed to it. So I think there's an element of that. But look, what I, I I'm not sure that that's the reason that it's run into difficulties. I, I think one one way of thinking about a referendum in in Australian history in relation to constitutional change is that it starts with a problem. It starts with something that is recognised as a problem that needs to be fixed. And it can be anything from, you know, the fact that high court judges are not retiring when they get rather old. It can be as simple as that, right through to something as as complex as the ways in which governments in Australia raise overseas loans or you know the kinds of things that the Labor Party put up in the early 20th century. Um, where they, they, they argued that corporate power, the power of business was becoming so strong and was, you know, tending towards monopoly that federal government needed more power to deal with it. All of these are about identifying a kind of, a kind of problem. And, and people need to be convinced that the problem is both real and pressing. So I think that's the first stage. And then secondly, they need to be persuaded that the proposal that's being put out is needed to deal with that problem that it can't be dealt with more easily or more readily in some other way, or perhaps that the proposal that's being put up won't give rise to unforeseen problems or that will actually create bigger problems. There's a whole range of things that, that um, you know, can kind of be used against any proposal uh, that, that, that is aimed at that kind of problem solving. And I think if we, we, we think of the present referendum in those sorts of terms, it gives us a way actually looking at the campaigns and looking at public opinion. And I don't know the answer to this, but at the moment I'd suggest that probably a majority of people haven't been persuaded that the problem is sufficiently pressing. And the problem here, I guess, is um, recognition of Indigenous people in the Constitution, the need for a new kind of representative body that would be embedded in the Constitution. So people aren't persuaded, if you like, that the um, that the lack of that is is a sufficiently pressing problem and not persuaded the solutions that are being put up will actually resolve the problem. Now, I'm a yes voter. I am persuaded that, you know, on balance these are good things or that the voice is a good thing. But if we think of it in those terms, it, it perhaps gives us a way of, of considering, you know, the ways in which the campaigns, I think, works. Um, and clearly there, there are strong emotional elements and what begins as about solving a particular problem with a particular solution and often take on other kinds of resonance. You know, um, people project other kinds of fears or other kinds of fantasies sometimes onto the proposal. So I'm not suggesting it always remains at that level of a kind of rational problem to be solved, but it does seem to me that at the most basic level, you do need to get a really significant number of people who perceive the problem and the solution in, in terms that dispose them to vote yes. And I'm not sure that that's happened in this case. 
Frank, you've just given us this extraordinary historical perspective and I know I'm learning from the conversation and it feels late in this discussion to be learning uh, for something that is taking place quite soon. Listeners, we have to take a short break here. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Professor Frank Bongiorno from the ANU talking about the history of referendums in Australia and the referendum that we will be facing very shortly. Frank, in your 2023 Menzies lecture that you gave at King's College London, you talked about a a new political geography and that paper has just been published in the Journal of Australian Studies. It's called Australia, a new political geography with a question mark at the end. And our listeners, if you haven't read that paper yet, it really is worth taking a read of. And Frank, I wonder if you could just share with us how you see that new political geography beginning to unfold. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. I mean, it had two aspects in my argument. One of them was about the resurgence of of states in particular and state government, which obviously was quite dramatic during the COVID-19 a pandemic, or at least the, the the lockdown phase, where state governments seem to have their their tentacles in every aspect of our our daily lives. But I also suggest that is part of a longer term elevation, I think, of the importance of state governments in Australia across a whole range of domains of social policy, of infrastructure, a whole bunch of things that I think state governments are doing. The aspect of it that's obviously more relevant to the voice referendum is. Uh, is um, you know, what I've, I guess, called the resurgence of First Nations. And by that I mean a language, um, a, a sense of space, of geography that um, is less concerned with pan, what was used to be called pan-Aboriginality or, you know, Aboriginal identity in the broad and abstract sense than it is with much more localised identity. So First Nation, Aranta, Ngunnawal here in Canberra, Sometimes more regional-based identities, uh, uh, such as Murray in in in, in Queensland or Nunga in Western Australia, um, uh, uh, well, I've called that a, a new political geography. Of course, it's a very old political ge- geography for Indigenous people. But my interest is partly in the way in which it's now a much more prominent part of public discourse, and it's also become, I think, probably more significant to how. First Nations Indigenous people articulate their own identities and and think of their own identities within public debate, political discourse, but perhaps just also everyday life to be Wiradjuri 
um, rather than to be Indigenous or Aboriginal, for instance. And I've suggested that's happened quite sudden, suddenly. I mean, it's it's on. Well, it's not sudden. Obviously, it's it's happened over a, a long period. But I think as um, something that's very salient for public discourse, it is a product of the last few decades, and I think perhaps even more drastically, the last decade or so. And it has, I think, quite important implications for how we think about um, what it is to know about Australia. I mean, what does it mean now to be kind of literate? Well, it means being able to differentiate, to know that the the history of the Kemeroi is different from the history of the Wiradjuri and, and, and to be able to explain those differences, to be able, if you're interested in politics, to articulate the ways in which those identities feed into politics. The voice proposal, of course, fundamentally is about a, a voice to parliament. Obviously, there are various models that have been debated, but it clearly is an attempt at a representative body in the, in the way that a parliament is a representative body. But it's a representative body that would obviously need to grapple with um, that kind of differentiation and variety that I've called the new political geography. And we've seen even during the campaign complaints about or complaints from some Indigenous people about other Indigenous people speaking on their behalf. Um, you know, uh, Indigenous people in Alice Springs complaining about Jacinta Price, um, saying that she's not from here, she's Walpiri, she's from over there, she's from another place. And to me, that really interesting aspect of the politics that is unfolding here, and, yeah, I've called it in that lecture um, with a question mark because, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I've called it a new political geography because I think it demands um, a, a new kind of engagement and knowledge of all of us. Uh, you know, when we, we think about the history of this country, it's no longer adequate to simply talk about Aboriginal people or Indigenous people. We, we need to be literate and to understand those kinds of those kinds of differences and what they mean to Indigenous people, again, across a whole range of domains from art um, and music right through to, to politics and, and uh, you know, religion and, and a whole range of things like that. Frank, that really is a beautiful thesis uh, to, to consider the evolving geography surrounding our politics and our understanding of place and time, particularly important, I think, as we approach this referendum. What do you think that the debates that have taken place around the Voice to Parliament referendum tell us about ourselves as a nation, about our understanding of our past and about our understanding of our possible pathways in the future? Yeah, I mean, certainly the debate has often revealed, you know, quite high levels of uh, ignorance or misunderstanding of um, Australian history, of Australia's past and present as a, as a settler society and what that means and what that's meant for Indigenous people. And, you know, it's really important here to think of age, I think, that, that, that sort of demographic characteristic. I mean, I'm in my mid-50s and I don't think I learnt anything of Aboriginal history until year 11 at school in Australian history, which means that most of the other students uh, in my year would have got nothing because they wouldn't have done history in year 11. So, and I, I'm, you know, I don't consider myself um, extremely aged at this stage. So, you know, it, it, it's pretty clear that if you are of certain generations in this country, you probably haven't encountered, you might not have encountered very much uh, Aboriginal history at school and 
you know, I, I think there probably are large gaps in many people's knowledge and understanding of, of a lot of these things. So I think it's revealed something of that. It has brought out an element of racism. There's no doubt about that. I think that's undeniable. Um, it's being reported by you know, many Indigenous people that they're you know, getting uh, racist messages you know, on social media and other places. Um, uh, so all of that's happening. I think there is a danger of overreading the whole thing. That is, you know, whatever happens on, on Saturday, very big narratives are going to be read into it by both sides, actually. Both sides will read very big stories about what this country is, about the national soul, about its national identity into this result. Now, I think it's actually a responsibility of academics and perhaps particularly academic historians, but also I think political scientists and others to actually, you know, to, to, to be capable of a cooler appraisal of the result, to actually look at what has happened about why people vote yes, why they vote no, um, to, to, to resist, I think, some of those really big narratives that so many people, I, I can see it already, it will be everywhere on, on Sunday morning on social media about what this means. If, if the no vote gets up, you'll have people saying this proves once and for all that we are overwhelmingly a racist nation and that this has brought shame on us around the world. Uh, if, if yes gets up, we'll be told that, you know, in the end, good and right have prevailed and it shows that we're not as racist as we thought we were and that, uh, uh, you know, a, a brighter future of reconciliation is possible and a whole range of things like that, I suspect. I think we should re resist both of those kinds of, of I think, over-reading of what's going on here. There, there are, I can tell you as a historian, there are complex reasons why, uh, referendum results go one way or the other, um, and and we should be careful. I think about reading too much into whatever happens. Um, it's inevitable; people will, but I think we also, you know, do need to be capable of of being able to to, to look at it in a, in a much more, I, I guess, um, analytical way. Because we'll need people able to do that. I think um, in the time ahead. Frank, I think that's such an important piece of analysis. And I think for many people, and to be completely frank, I would include myself in this, this referendum has been quite an emotional journey. And so we are reading into it great importance and and reflecting on very deeply on what it means for us as a nation. But I think that analysis that you've given us is so important that regardless of the importance of a referendum, it doesn't shape everything that comes before or comes after. Um, and we do need some very cool thinking as we come out of the referendum, regardless of the result. Yeah, I mean, we need cool thinking, not least, because whatever happens, the, the result on Saturday is not going to resolve some really pressing issues faced by Indigenous people in this country. I mean, they are still going to have to be tackled. I mean, on balance, I believe that, you know, a, a voice would help us to tackle those issues uh, and, and, and therefore is, is, you know, a good thing. Uh, not everyone obviously accepts that argument. But whatever happens, I mean, that the issues will remain pressing. Um, we know that there is a significant body of Indigenous opinion, both, I guess you might call it a conservative right-wing opinion, but also uh, the black sovereignty movement, might call left-wing opinion, that, that is actually opposed to the referendum. Um, and, and that you know, obviously needs to give us pause. I mean, it, it, it suggests that within 
you know, quite rightly, within First Nations peoples, within Indigenous society, there is disagreement and debate. There is a public, an Indigenous public sphere, if you like, in this country where these sorts of debates uh, go on, and and that's a, a healthy thing. We should we should celebrate that, but it should also remind us that that whatever happens, there will be a lot of work to do. Whether a yes vote gets up or whether a no vote gets up. Uh, I mean, the other reading, of course, that is now very widespread because it's so deeply ingrained in our culture is what the historian Graham Davison has called the imaginary grandstand. This is the idea that the world is watching us. And uh, if we take a wrong step on Saturday, uh, you know, it will be a cause of great national shame uh, because uh, Australia is under the microscope. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, uh, the world is a complex place and, uh, yes, Australia will be under a degree of scrutiny and so it should be uh, on, on Saturday. But, you know, we're probably also deceiving ourselves if we think the whole world is watching our particular national and parochial concerns. I mean, and in any case, is that a reason to, to vote one way or another? I would like to think, we, you know, we might consider uh, voting uh, because we want to make our society better, not because we're worried about being shamed internationally. To me, that's not a very, I think, noble motive for, for, for voting yes or no. Um, it seems to me that we should be looking at what are the, the problems that our society faces and, and how should they direct us in terms of our vote on, on Saturday, not really, you know, whether it'll go down well with The Guardian or, um, you know, with The New York Times. It doesn't seem to me that that's a pressing reason to, to vote one way or another. Frank, I think that's extraordinarily helpful as we think about how we go into this referendum, but also how we come out of the referendum. And as we begin to wind up this conversation, and it's a conversation that I'd like to, to continue for another couple of hours, but we'll have to start to wind up soon, I'd, I'd really love to, to get your thoughts on what you think the implications of this referendum process might be for future referendums. I'm thinking particularly of what this might mean for another referendum on the Republic. Is that something we're likely to see now in the next five or ten years? But more broadly, what does it mean for, for constitutional change? Yeah, it's a really good question, Sharon, because, yeah, I mean, I, I would have thought a yes vote would, would probably encourage uh, a second-term Labor government, if there is one, to, to grapple with uh, the Republic again. A no vote, on the other hand, would probably you know, place constitutional change in, in the deep freeze for a very long time. And, and that's worrying, I think, in a, in a whole range of ways. It, 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 I think, crafts or creates a situation in which the constitution looks as though it can't be changed, in which it doesn't look like a living constitution that, that is able to respond to, to shifting values and to, to, to new expectations and new needs. You know, it, it could make people feel more remote from the constitution itself, um, if 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 it looks like it's sort of set in concrete, so I think what happens Saturday will have very deep implications actually for how we relate to our constitution, for for the, the kind of cultural history of that constitution, its its embeddedness in our culture and society. I think it will, to many Australians, it could increasingly look like a, a rather foreign object um, if if it turns out that you know it it it's become virtually impossible to actually change it. So, yeah, a lot rides 
a, a lot more than Aboriginal affairs and Indigenous affairs perhaps ride on the result of Saturday. And I think that's the implication of your, your question, Sharon. Frank Bongiorno, we could talk to you for a long time and it's been extraordinary particularly to think our way back through the history of referenda in Australia as well as seeing the importance of what takes place in the week ahead, what it might mean for Australia's future. I very much look forward to having you back in the in the next year or so to perhaps reflect further on these questions. But perhaps in the meantime, we can finish today's conversation by saying a, a great thank you for your time and wisdom today. Thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Anna Greta. Thanks, Sharon. It's been a pleasure. Anna Greta, I always enjoy talking with and listening to Frank Bongiorno. I just I feel as though I learned so much about our history every time I hear him speak. Absolutely. And I do think that his, his comment about the danger of overreading the result, whichever way it goes, is a really important one for us to keep in mind. But I do hope as, as people think about casting their vote on Saturday the 14th of October, for those listeners who, who are in a position to be casting a vote, I do hope that these series of conversations that we've had over this year help you to make an informed decision and have helped to bring some light to what at times have been very difficult conversations. I've really enjoyed these conversations. It's been a privilege to be a part of them. Um, And I wanted to thank you, Anna Greta, for your role in these conversations around what is an incredibly important moment in our history. And likewise, Sharon, it's been extraordinary working with you on our conversations for The Voice. I know both of us regard this as an extraordinarily important moment in the Australian context. And I think that's where I found today's conversation really inspiring. The vote in this referendum does matter. And it is an opportunity for each one of us who has the opportunity to vote to be part of history, to be part of a change in the Australian uh, direction, whichever way the result might go. But today's conversation helps me to see that broader context. It's a context that's come up in all of our conversations before, and I know it will be part of our reflection of understanding what has brought us to this particular moment and what it is that helps us to make a choice in the vote. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, this process unfold in the weeks ahead and to learning as much as we can, thinking about that broader context into our future. Yeah, Anna Greta, this this is a moment in history. So, and I think we've both been very clear about our position on this um, and look forward to continuing the conversation beyond the 14th of October. Sharon, our fingers are crossed. They are indeed. Listeners, this podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. And I particularly highly recommend that recent paper from Frank Bongiorno. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with our future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, we would love to see a review. It's one of the best ways for other people to find out about the podcast. We love hearing from you, our audience. So please do reach out to us on Twitter. I'm still calling it Twitter at ANU Crawford or through our email address, policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. Our thanks to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's it for us for for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week.
Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.